I didn't choose the title. One of the parents of one of the children in the book actually told, chose it. Her name's Lori Sames, and her little girl, Hannah, is one of 54, I think, people in the entire world with her disease, which is sort of like Lou Gehrig's disease in a child. And we were at a fundraiser. Lori and I were sitting on bar stools watching people carry her daughter around. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, Ricky, if gene therapy works, it'll be a forever fix. And I kind of filed that away. And then about six weeks later, one of the researchers for an entirely different disease told me the same thing. She said, if it works, it'll be a forever fix. So with a researcher and a parent calling it that, I thought it was a great title. My name my, my name's Ricky Lewis. I'm a geneticist and a science writer. I've been writing textbooks for the past 30 years and many magazine articles, but this new book is the most exciting thing I've ever done, and I'm really thrilled to be talking about it. Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. The voice you heard at the top of the program belongs to Dr. Ricky Lewis. Dr. Lewis is the author of four textbooks, including the standard biology textbook Life and the popular genetics textbook Human Genetics, Concepts and Applications, now in its 10th edition. She teaches bioethics for the Alden March Bioethics Institute of the Albany Medical Center. She is also a popular journalist, blogger, and writer. She joined us to talk about gene therapy and her new book, The Forever Fix. A lot of people listening probably remember or at least recognize the phrase gene therapy. Back in the halcyon days of the mid-90s, gene therapy was going to be the next big thing, curing previously incurable diseases and revolutionizing medicine. But over the last decade or so, gene therapy and the potential promise of gene therapy have been somewhat eclipsed in the public consciousness by the potential of embryonic stem cells. But here's the thing. Gene therapy hasn't gone away. The path from ideal to clinical practice has been bumpy, but the potential of gene therapy is still what it always was, and now, in some cases, gene therapy can be used to make enormous improvements in people's lives. Dr. Lewis talked to us about gene therapy and about some of the families who have experienced the benefits of these therapies, as well as some families who have felt the tragedies. Mm -hmm. She also talked about how gene therapy has progressed and why it still has so much potential. But first, here's Dr. Lewis telling us what exactly gene therapy is. Gene therapy replaces faulty genetic instruction, so it's getting to a disease at its absolute source, so that if it's completely corrected, the problem should go away. It's a lot like fixing your hard drive. Fixing a hard drive? I like that. Yeah, it's definitely a comparison for the computer age. 
And it's a really apt comparison, too. When you have a hard drive problem, your computer cannot access the information it needs to show you pictures from your last vacation or play whatever hot new Smashing Pumpkins or Katy Perry <laughs> or whatever MP3 is out there. Is that what you listen to, Forrest? More one than the other. Uh, I, I know which one. Katy Perry, right? Absolutely. Uh-huh. <laughs> Anyhow, when you have disease, you could say that your body can't access the information, the gene or genes, necessary to, pre- to prevent or repair that disease. That's what gene therapy, in general, tries to do. It provides a gene to your cells, that gene gets expressed in the region where it's needed, and the deleterious phenotype ideally improves. One question I had, though, is how gene therapy puts genes into your body. How gene therapy gets beneficial proteins expressed in the tissue of interest. And the answer to that, gene therapy uses viruses. A virus is simply DNA or RNA coated in protein, so it's possible to take out the bad genes and put in the good genes, the genes that a child lacks, for example, in a particular disease, and then those doctored viruses are placed in the part of the body that requires the correction, and hopefully it'll work, and so far it's been working in a number of different diseases. Viruses as vectors. That's an idea that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, viruses live, if you can call it life, to transfer their DNA to a host cell. So if you want to get DNA into a human cell, all you have to do is put that DNA in a virus and remove the parts of the virus that you don't want. The virus then will do what it normally does, attach to a cell and transfer DNA into the host. Voila, all done. Right, but the big thing viruses are known for is making people sick. We asked Dr. Lewis if there's a risk associated with using viruses as delivery mechanisms. I don't think a lot can go wrong. Uh, researchers have been working with viruses for, for, you know, a century, close to a century anyway. So viruses are the simplest. They're not even organisms. They're that simple. So their entire DNA or RNA sequences have been known for many, many years. So it's pretty accurate to predict what will work and what won't work. For example, one of the viruses used in gene therapy, believe it or not, is HIV. And the researchers take out the disease genes and they replace the ones that are needed. And it it doesn't make sense, you know, but it it is pretty, pretty safe. It does work. I buy that argument. Viruses are very simple molecular containers that we know a lot about and that we can manipulate fairly easily. But I'm also a scientist and maybe that predisposes me to accept an idea that might be a little out there. Right. So someone who is not a scientist and might not be predisposed to accept this argument, you know, the average person might not yeah. be likely to accept that argument. So we asked Dr. Lewis what the population as a whole might think about using viruses as vectors in gene therapy. Uh, it scares people because they associate viruses with disease. Um, a lot of people don't realize what a virus is. It's not a cell. It's not alive. It's a packet of DNA that can move. And we're taking advantage of that and using it as a vehicle. One of the researchers likes to describe gene therapy as like a a federal express truck, that we're using it to deliver something that's inside it. That's why the same type of virus can be used in many different diseases, because it's what it carries that's important. Dr. Lewis closed that statement by noting that the same type of virus can be used in many diseases. What that means is that it is the genome contained in a virus and not the mechanism for entering a cell that makes the disease what it is. 
So if you replace the viral genome with a gene or genes you're interested in, you preserve the ability of the virus to enter the cell, but you remove the ability of the virus to spread or cause damage. Right, and if you really want to get your gene of interest expressed in the most cells possible, if you want your gene therapy treatment to have the maximum efficiency possible, then you want a virus that is really, really good at infecting its target. That, along with all the research done on it and the understanding that research has brought, is one of the reasons why HIV is sometimes used as a viral vector. Yeah, Dr. Lewis's book, The Forever Fix, is not really about gene therapy, though. At least, if this book were a movie, gene therapy would not be the Arnold Schwarzenegger character from Total Recall. It wouldn't even be the Marshall Bell character. He's the one who played Quato. Instead, gene therapy would be Mars. The setting, the context, the environment that makes the whole story make sense, makes the whole story possible. Here's Dr. Lewis to explain. The story is mostly um, the story of Corey Haas, who regained his vision four days after gene therapy. In fact, on that fourth day, he was at the Philadelphia Zoo with his parents. This is where the book opens. And he heard the other kids screaming about the hot air balloon, so he looked up, opened his eyes, and screamed. And it was because it was the first time he saw the sun. Corey has uh, labor congenital amaurosis. It's a failure of a layer of cells in his retina to use vitamin A. The rods and cones, the photoreceptors, need vitamin A to send light signals to the brain, and his cells are missing a protein, and they can't do it. So the gene therapy simply replaces the protein, and it works. Corey wasn't the first. There were uh, several young adults treated in, in London at Moorfields Eye Hospital in 2007 and 2008. So the reports of those young people had been published, I think it was in the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine, I think both. And that's when I first heard about it in, in the young people. And then I heard it was being done in an eight-year-old and I had no idea he lived close to me until I saw his picture on the front page of the Schenectady Gazette and I put two and two together and realized, oh my God, this kid's practically in my backyard. So I just kind of got lucky in finding him. So he was the most compelling case because he was the youngest child at that point. Since then, some three-year-olds have been treated as well. Okay, that disease, Libra's congenital amaurosis, or LCA, is what Corey had. It's what he still has, though gene therapy has worked wonders in his eyes. But if you remember, we promised you another great story from this book. Here's that story, again, after Corey had gene therapy. There's a meeting coming up. Um, July 20th in Philadelphia from the Foundation for Retinal Research, I will be there. And the families meet there from all the different LCAs. And that was one of my favorite scenes in the book, the meeting two years ago. It's a giant room filled with families, little kids with visual problems with dogs and canes and, you know, walking around. And the little groups of people formed based on their Facebook groups because everybody had met on Facebook by mutation. So the room was filled with these groups of mutations. And at the front of the room, there's this big shaggy dog running around with a big red leash, and Corey's on the other end of the leash. And then when the meeting got under the, underway, the chairperson said, that's not the blind leading the blind, it's the sighted leading the sighted because the dog had the same disease that Corey did, and he was cured with gene therapy. In fact, it was done on dogs the year that Corey was born. That's the cutest story about a science meeting I ever heard, although I can't say there's a lot of competition for that. No, but I did name that MP3, that segment of the interview, the cutest convention story ever, dot MP3. However, that story is missing some important background. Yeah. You know how we said that if this book were Total Recall, then gene therapy would be Mars, the setting and context making the whole story possible? (laughs) 
Well, if you remember Total Recall, a lot of the story hinges on the lack of oxygen on Mars. So that lack of oxygen is another necessary element of the movie's context. You're really on a Total Recall kick today, and I have to say it's one movie I've never seen. Really? <laughs> we'll, we'll have to change that. But, uh, but I'm on this kick because I saw a trailer for the new Total Recall movie. Totally bummed that they're making that. I would not go see that one. But uh-huh. uh, I, I don't know. Maybe it's great. But, but the point, though, is that there's another bit of background that we haven't told you about yet, an important bit. So that was just an amazing, amazing story because nine years earlier, an 18-year-old also treated for a different disease with gene therapy in Philadelphia, the same place, died four days after gene therapy. I wanted to stop the tape there to let that sink in. About 10 years before Corey House had his treatment, another young man was receiving a similar treatment at the same hospital from many of the same people, and that young man, Jesse Gelsinger, died. Keep in mind, this is not just someone dying at a hospital. That unfortunately happens all the time. This was someone dying in a clinical trial. That obviously has an effect on that trial and other similar trials. Trials were just stopped for two or three years, and the book talks about what happened to the kids with Canavan disease. Um, one, of, one of the little kids in the book, Max Randell, lives um, near Chicago, so I hope his family's listening. Um, but yeah, those kids with the Canavan disease, were, several of them were, had already been treated. They needed a second treatment. It was not a forever fix for their disease. And they had to wait two or three years, and some of them backslid. They had some of their brain symptoms coming back before the gene therapy trial could get back on track, which, which it eventually did. But it's understandable that the government would shut down trials when there had been a death until it could be figured out what went wrong. Dr. Lewis ended that clip with the comment that it's understandable that the government stopped trials until we knew what had gone wrong. But she also mentioned that trials have resumed now. We asked Dr. Lewis, what happened? What went wrong? Yes, the main problem with Jesse Gelsinger's gene therapy was the type of virus that was used. This goes back to your other question, could it be dangerous? I guess, I guess it could be. But that was called an adenovirus. It causes um, common cold, other respiratory conditions. And the problem with the adenovirus is that in addition to going into Jesse's main liver cells called hepatocytes, it also went into immune system cells called macrophages. And Jesse actually died of an overwhelming immune response. For Corey's um, procedure, they used a different virus called adeno-associated virus. And some journalists get these mixed up and think they're the same thing. They're not the same at all. So in addition to using a safer virus, Parts of the eye are immune privileged. That means the immune system can't react to something done to them. So that's why the eye is the focus, no pun intended, of many um, experimental therapies. And his uh, one eye was treated first, just in case you know it didn't work well. They wouldn't have messed up two eyes. So there were a lot of differences between Jesse Gelsinger's gene therapy and Corey Haas's. But going to the same hospital for the same or a similar experimental procedure has to be a bit unnerving. We asked Dr. Lewis if the Haas family knew what had happened to Jesse Gelsinger. No, they weren't, and I didn't know whether to tell them. I, I, the first time I met them, I asked if they'd heard about Jesse Gelsinger, and they said, who? And I very gently said that he died, because Corey was already treated when I met him, um, that Jesse had died after four days and that it was a liver disease, nothing to do with the eyes, and I don't think they knew how horrible that was until they read the account in my book. 
I'm a little disappointed, actually, that the hospital didn't tell the Haas family. Yeah, that seems like really relevant information. Definitely, and it isn't the only example of communication problems. We also asked Dr. Lewis what Paul Gelsinger, Jesse's father, thought about gene therapy. Well, I can't put words in his mouth because he emailed me about six weeks ago after we read the book, and he thanked me, and he said he's so happy that his son's sacrifice gave a little boy back his vision. So Paul and Jesse are and were absolutely amazing human beings that they could be so selfless. But Paul also warned me not to believe everything I hear. I guess he was warning me not to believe everything that researchers say. I think, I think that's what he meant because part of the confusion over his son's death was that um, the informed consent, some people might say, was not totally informed. What had happened was that the same virus used on Jesse had been used on monkeys and actually one or two monkeys had died. And Paul Gelsinger didn't know this. And, you know, back in the late 90s, we didn't Google as much as we do today. You had to have a way to get medical journal articles to even learn things like that. So Paul Gelsinger, and I am putting words in his mouth here, um, but you can look up Jesse's intent and read the entire thing. His whole story is on the web. But um, he felt that the researchers should have mentioned the dead monkeys, and he only found out after Jesse died that that had happened. And in fact, there had been a meeting, a bioethics sort of meeting from the recombinant DNA advisory committee where the monkey experiments were brought up. So he felt that he should have been told that had he known monkeys had died, he probably wouldn't have told Jesse to go ahead and be in the experiment. The researchers, though, I really made a great effort to get their point of view. Um, Dr. Jim Wilson, I think he honestly felt that it wasn't relevant because the monkey experiments were not for a disease. It was a control experiment. So it was a lot of miscommunication that was going on, but it did lead to a complete overhaul of the informed consent process. I should note, we're not equating the lack of knowledge transfer uh, between the hospital and Paul Gelsinger in the 90s with the information the Haas family had available 10 years later. As Dr. Lewis noted, the diseases were different, the treatments were different, the availability of that information to the, on the Internet to a broader public was different. We're not trying to say that there's any systematic communication issues. No, but it, it is disappointing to see a parallel, however weak, between the two cases. Yeah, but, but this small disappointment that we have is really overwhelmed by the promise and progress gene therapy has, has shown. After all, Corey Haas can see now. And remember, gene therapy trials were almost universally halted in the U.S. less than 15 years ago. We asked Dr. Lewis if the field is recovering from that. It looks to me like they are. If you look at clinicaltrials.gov, which is my favorite website, you could put in um, gene therapy. And I think the last time I looked, there were 2,700 entries, which is an exaggeration. Some of them, when you look at them, you think, what does this have to do with gene therapy? But there are, you know, at least many hundreds of gene therapy trials going on now all over the world for a lot of different types of diseases. So I, I think it has really resurged in recent years. And the number of clinical trials, the research, that's not the only thing that's on its way back. Enthusiasm for gene therapy is also heading back towards where it was in the 90s. I think the enthusiasm has recovered. And, you know, those days in the 90s, a lot of the excitement had to do with the Human Genome Project, and everyone was so hyped about that and looking forward to getting the sequence. Then the sequencing was actually done by, you know, between 2000 and 2003, the sequence was kind of refined. And then a bunch of years went by when researchers were trying to figure out what it all meant. And I know all this because I write a human genetics textbook, and it has to be redone every two years. 
So I have this sort of broad view of where the field has gone in terms of how often I have to rewrite my book. So the 90s were, were sort of a golden age of, of genetics. I mean, between 1989 and 1994 or 5, so many major genetic diseases had their genes discovered, which actually had nothing to do with the sequencing of the human genome. But all of these discoveries paired with the sequencing of the human genome made it seem as if we were on the verge of conquering everything. And things are never as simple as they seem. Things aren't as simple as they seem. That's very true. And I really like the idea that one of the reasons we as a society were so excited about gene therapy in the 1990s was because genetics was so exciting in the 1990s. Right. Gene therapy was hitting it big at the same time. PCR was being widely adopted by lab after lab after lab. And when the quickening rumblings of the Human Genome Project were pushing that forward, it was an exciting time for genetics. And if you pick up almost any copy of Science or Nature in the late 80s or early 90s or early 80s, you're likely to find an article or two about how so-and-so cloned out the gene that caused any specific disease, a single gene that caused a single disease with simple Mendelian inheritance. And as we know now, and really we knew this back then too, mm -hmm. many diseases are not simple. Many of them arise from a complex combination of genetic and environmental factors. This last bit, that a lot of diseases arise from multiple causes, to me, that seemed like a problem for gene therapy. I mean, the idea behind gene therapy is simple. A patient has a disease. That disease is caused by the lack of expression of a, of a specific gene. And so you put the gene back in, and the patient recovers. But what happens when you have a multifactorial disease? We asked Dr. Lewis if gene therapy will forever be limited to only simple disorders. Oh, I don't think there's any limit at all because genes interact. And that's what researchers are teasing out of the human genome sequence now. For example, uh, someone can have a mutation that would normally cause a disease called spinal muscular atrophy, but a person could also have a second mutation in a different gene that nullifies the effect of the first one. And that person would never come to a doctor's attention because they wouldn't be sick. So it's going to take doing genome sequences of many people to figure out how all the genes interact with each other. And it's only when that's done that we're really going to be able to make a lot of sense out of everything. So in everything in science and everything in life, the more we learn, the more we realize we need to learn. It never ends. To summarize, Dr. Lewis doesn't think gene therapy will be limited to simple diseases because, as we learn more, we'll learn better how to apply gene therapy and how better to attack diseases. We asked her for a little more specific example of how we might scale up from simple Mendelian disorders to more complex diseases. One of the first ones, for example, that had the gene discovery was cystic fibrosis. And there are several really terrific new treatments for that now. So, you know, discovering all of the single gene, single genes behind the inherited diseases was, was very helpful. The reason why gene therapy is done first on these single gene diseases is that we understand how they work. It's like having one thing wrong with the computer, one major thing, rather than having a whole bunch of little things, which is a lot harder to figure out. So now, once we learn how to treat something like Corey's disease, which is a very rare single gene disorder, we can take the approach and use it for something more common, such as age-related macular degeneration. So the single gene diseases that some of which have been conquered over the past 15 years are, are really like canaries in a coal mine. Once we figure out how to treat them, we could transfer what we learned to the more common conditions. But the more common complex diseases, they're, they're really hard nuts to crack because Many genes contribute to the disease and their environmental influences as well. 
You know, that answer made it crystal clear that we were listening to someone who writes a genetics textbook. It did. It was wonderfully, wonderfully clear, concise, and informative. I really, really like that answer. But, and I can't stress this enough, this book isn't a textbook. It's, in a way, it's not even a science book. Just like Total Recall, you know, it, Total Recall wasn't Enough really... Enough with Total Recall. Not everyone has seen it. I know. I was just kidding this time anyhow. But <laughs> Dr. Lewis doesn't just write textbooks. She's an author, a blogger, a journalist, and a genetic counselor. And she blended all of those backgrounds to produce this book. You know, nowadays, I don't know if I'm going to say the wrong thing here, blogging is not the same thing as real journalism to me. I mean, I do both. Blogging is reinventing the wheel. It's recycling stuff that's been published that people have said. It's not the same thing as good old-fashioned legwork. I took one journalism course in my life, and that's what we learned. You've got to get off your rear end and go to the sources and follow them around and see what they're doing. And I was able to parlay my journalism experience into this book. The book is a genre called narrative or creative nonfiction. And it's where you go. The journalist becomes somewhat involved in the story. And, of course, the best example of that is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, where Rebecca Skloot lived that story for 10 years. She is the story. So I know a journalist is not supposed to take part in the story, but in this particular genre, you can. You can write in the first person once in a while. I tried to step back from these stories as much as possible, but my connections with the people gradually became the story. So the beginning of the book contrasts Corey's case with uh, Jesse Gelsinger, who died. And it's a very compelling, difficult part of the book to read. I actually tell the story through the newspaper headlines. And in fact, one reader called me up and told me she couldn't stop reading it. And she missed her stop on the New York City subway and ended up in North Bronx. <laughs> so it's, it's very tragic. The book does get really happy, you know, about two-thirds of the way through with some of the success stories. And they started to intertwine. I found that the same researchers were working on, on different projects. So I envisioned the book as a series of stories, but they all connect. So it's one narrative. Dr. Lewis talked there about her book's narrative arc. She also talked to us earlier about her book's emotional arc. That arc is based on what sound like wonderful relationships that she has with a number of the families she writes about. We asked her if these relationships contributed to her story and her understanding of gene therapy. Yeah, very much so. The, I think the most personal involvement I have is with Max Randell, who lives near Chicago. He has been featured in my check, textbook since he's three years old. And I have a, an essay that his um, wonderful mother, Elise, writes every edition. And I was always so afraid that something bad would happen to him. But he's, he's here, and he's smart, and he's happy, and he just graduated middle school. And my, I wrote a blog about him when he graduated about two weeks ago. So, yeah, I've been involved with that family and with the Haases and very, very involved with Hannah Sames, who has the Lou Gehrig's type disease, giant axonal neuropathy. In fact, I'm trying to help them raise funds now because they are on the brink of having gene therapy for this, this poor little girl, and they've run out of money. So all of us who care about them are trying to get some kind of donations going. The one example to me that, that was most rewarding that made up for me not being reviewed in the New York Times was when Elise Randell read the part of the book to Lowell Max about how I felt he felt when I watched him at his 13th birthday party, and he, he reached out and touched her. This is a boy who can't move. All he could move are his facial features, yet if something really affects him, he was able to move his arm to tell his mother, to comfort his mother, 
and she felt, reading his expressions, that he was saying, yes, Ricky got it right. I am happy with my wife. I'm glad you did this. So, you know, to me, it's it's very, very important to be involved with your sources if, if you're a writer. I should note, Dr. Lewis's book may not have been reviewed by the New York Times, but reviews on Amazon are spectacular. Every single review gives her book five stars. We also played the Gracotron 5000 with Dr. Lewis. Unfortunately, my co-host bungled the introduction. But Sorry. We asked Dr. Lewis, since she's an expert in genetics and quite knowledgeable about gene therapy, what genes she might recommend for each of several celebrities. First off was golfer Tiger Woods. Something that suppresses testosterone level. Uh, second was former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Oh, boy. Something to make him think a little bit more before he speaks. It's always a good thing. Uh, up next... We have our current president, Barack Obama. Oh, I love Barack Obama. I'm, I couldn't think of anything to, to improve him. Another president, this time former president, Bill Clinton. Oh, I love Bill Clinton, too. Um, I guess I would take away the genes that are predisposing him to heart disease. And, and the last one we have, uh, Lindsay Lohan. Oh, she needs some help with her nucleus accumbens in her brain. She, that's the, the addiction part of the brain. But she's really a very good actress, so she has problems, and I would rewire her brain to keep her out of trouble, but keep her acting. That's it for the show today. If you're interested in hearing more from us, you can find our website by Googling The Grok Science Show. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. Thanks for listening, and please do tweet or post to us on Facebook or our website. We'd love to hear from you. For The Grok Science Radio Show and Forrest Golden, Elise Kovic, Frank Ling, and Charles Lee, I'm Joanna Rowell.